Baseball isn't just numbers, numbers, numbers. This game is not being played on computers. You don't do that with a bunch of statistical gimmicks. You don't put a team together with a computer. We're talking weighted runs created plus. Expected Woba. Sweet spot rate. Defensive runs above average. Average exit velocity. Barrel rate. XFIP. BABIP. SIERA. We are above replacement radio. And welcome to Above Replacement Radio. We're talking baseball kind of whenever. I'm your host, Chris Gianta. Over there on the other side of the screen is Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel? Chris, I'm doing very well today. It's been a minute, but we're finally back. Uh, and oddly enough, not a lot has happened given the amount of time that we've been gone. I think it's been two weeks since the last time we recorded. And we have, uh, I guess, three signings and one trade to go over. And plus, we got some Baseball Hall of Fame stuff as well. Yeah, it is that time of year um where deals are flowing and you know the ballot is starting to you know get some <clears throat> get a little bit of traction there's there's some some ballots that have fluttered in um some fun ones some not so fun ones um but we're uh we're here for all of it so the first deal to get into the biggest deal um especially to me like i was i felt like this was going to be a good sign for whoever you know signed this guy sunny gray um signs a three-year 75 million dollar deal with the st louis cardinals um what did you think about this move it was definitely a necessary move for the cardinals um i mean if they're trying to compete next year in a division that uh might not be the strongest needed a starting pitcher that they can sort of depend on for next year because i mean if you look at it right now you know when you took out sunny gray from that rotation it was miles michaelis it was kyle gibson lance lynn uh, Stephen Matz, and then I think uh, Ryan or Zach Thompson was the was the fifth. So, uh, I mean, they needed someone to lead the rotation, and Sonny Gray is exactly that guy. They signed him. I'm pretty surprised. Uh, the Cardinals didn't really seem to do this very often in the past, but they gave him a pretty good chunk of uh, AAV money, three years and, and five mil a year, I believe it was. But it's also very backloaded. Uh, they're giving him ten million next year. Uh, 25 mil in 2025 and then 35 mil in 2026 which will be his age 36 season right and uh and yeah it's something that we kind of talked about of why it would have made sense for um the potential of the cardinals or the cubs was it wasn't going to be a it wasn't going to be a break the bank move it wasn't going to be a long-term move and that's exactly what it is. And, you know, it, I guess it's break the bank per year. You know, it's $25 million per year. But ultimately, you know, it's an investment for the next three years. Uh, and something why I liked this gray deal is, you know, I'm not projecting him to be, you know, a, a Cy Young finalist for all three of these years, but he does have a track record, you know, going back to uh, the going back to the start of the second half in 2022 so this is a year and a half sample um he is a 269 era and 294 fip uh and that and out of 45 qualifiers in that span that era ranks second and fips fip ranks third uh over a year and a half sample so you know he's he's built quite the track record very very sneakily under the radar yeah you know he absolutely has um and i love i love what the cardinals are doing with this contract with backloading it specifically because you know, you only have to give him $10 million next year. And then after 2024, uh, Paul Goldschmidt's money is off the books. I don't know if they're going to re-sign him or not, but if they do, they're probably not going to be paying him $26 million a year unless he 
comes back to MVP form this season, in which case I don't think they'd resign him. But, you know, that money would come off the books. They would have a $12 million option for Kyle Gibson and a $12 million option for Lance Lynn, both coming off the books. They'd also have, uh, if they don't take it, a $6.5 million option for Giovanni Gallegos coming off the books. Uh, the only person they have hitting free agency is Tyler O'Neill, which, I know, unless he returns to 2021 form this year, probably won't be getting uh, a large chunk. I mean, he definitely won't be getting a lot in arbitration, but, uh, you know, that's when they start paying him $25 million a year. And then even then, you know, $35 million a year in 2026. After that, you have $17 million of Miles Michaelis' money coming off the books and $12.5 million for Steven Matz. And not only that, but Nolan Arnato's contract is getting, you know, they're paying him less and less every year uh, with, uh, you know, the end of that contract coming up. He, go, he gets paid $35 million in 2024, $32 million in 2025, and then 27 and then 15 and then he's a free agent. So, uh, you know, the, the fact that they're giving the largest chunk of money to Sonny Gray, uh, at the back of that deal, it kind of makes sense because he's a guy that you could very much see aging well, uh, and you know it, it makes it easier for them to spend potentially further this year. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And you know, I'm trying to think that of the last time this rotation really had a true number one. Um, and 2021 Adam Wainwright, I guess. Like 2021 Adam Wainwright, but he probably wouldn't be that true number one if not for the defense behind him. Um, and I, I think it might go back to even like 2019 Jack Flaherty is like the last time you felt really that confident in a Cardinal starting pitcher, if you're not including Wayne Wright in that, of course. Um, but yeah, like, you know, I, I think this is, this, this will be big for the Cardinals. You know, I think there are a lot of people who wish they went after another guy of, Gray's caliber as well not that it's too late but you know they've kind of filled up that rotation a little bit um and it seems unlikely that they would go after another big name um but getting you know it, it's definitely a step in the right direction for the Cardinals who their starting pitching was a was a huge glaring weakness last year yeah I mean it was a, a huge glaring weakness on the and like when we say that I mean like it's pretty much the exclusive reason they were a last place team I mean I know that you know Arnado and Goldschmidt both did regress healthy uh the bullpen was shaky because the rotation you know left them out to dry so many times it's good to have a number one i still think i still think the rotation is too many question marks right now for me to confidently put them as a playoff contender but uh you know it's definitely it's definitely a lot better with sunny gray and sunny gray is a guy that can make any rotation better but uh it's certainly it's a move that needed to be made for st louis yeah, absolutely. Um, just breaking down, um, what that, what that starting rotation did. I have to get the positional split here on Fangraphs, but uh, but yeah, the St. Louis starting rotation, or at least starters in general, whoever started the game, whether it was an opener or a guy who went nine innings, um, they went. They had the uh, fifth worst ERA in baseball with a five oh eight ERA, and they had the um ninth worst FIP at a four, six, one FIP. Um, so, you know, and it's, it's not even like it was a bunch of, you know, uh, really high profile pitchers that were underperforming. It was like, like, it just seemed like it was bound to happen at some point with the arms they were throwing out there. Um, you know, you got like 41 year old Adam Wainwright going out there. You got wood, you know, Jake Woodford, like you just don't know what's going to happen. And it kind of crashed and burned. And I think the Cardinals are kind of acknowledging that right now. 
Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the most, it's one of the most obvious needs that any team in Major League Baseball had, given given the performances of last season, and also the, the prospects of this coming season as well, because it's not really like, I mean, I guess Tink Hens is pretty cool, but, you know, that's a Cardinals prospect that probably won't even be in the majors next year. Yeah, especially considering that the, um, especially considering, like, this is a high-profile team that, you know, the, the team's that were worse than them in starter ERA were the Rockies, Athletics, Reds, and Royals, teams that were not expected to do well last year, whereas the Cardinals were an obvious division contender, I think division favorite last year. So, so yeah, I think it's, um, I think, yeah, they, they really needed to acknowledge that it's, it's good that they did, but I think there is definitely a, you know, outside of gray, there's definitely a, an argument to be made that they should have, you know, went in a different direction in, in with some of their acquisitions. Yeah, the the Gibson and, and uh, Lynn for $24 million is kind of tough. Yeah, I mean, they will have their innings, but uh, the quality of those innings will be in question for sure. But Kyle Gibson did uh, win 15 games last year, so there is that. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's it. That's all you need. Did he have one of the best offenses in baseball behind him? Yeah. But you know what? That's all that matters. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, anything more on the Sunny Gray deal? Yeah, I mean, congrats to you for correctly predicting this one. I didn't know if the Cardinals were gonna be willing to hand out the money. Uh, but they did, and I'm glad they did. Yeah, they're well, I'm yeah, we're, I think um I'm one for like, I don't know, five or six out of the people that have signed so far. <laughs> um more than me. Is, which is all right um so hopefully hopefully more in the making i mean whenever otani signs that'll boost our percentage up hopefully hopefully i mean it seems like what the cubs the blue jays are in right now as well as the dodgers maybe the giants yeah i know i know there was like a passing report saying that like the red sox were or red sox and a couple other teams are already like kind of looking in other directions right now which is fine um Mm -hmm. But uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, another yeah, another acquisition. Do we want to get into Kenta Maeda? Yeah, what a yeah, that's another one, another good uh, acquisition in the starting rotation made by a team that needed pitching. Yes, uh, and a team that the Tigers are kind of sort of emerging a little bit. I I don't know they. They're they're doing the same thing they did two years ago. They finished off the year pretty well. They ended up uh, finishing second in the AL Central. I think like in the month of September they were like eighteen and ten or something something like that. Or they finished eighteen and ten something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, but yeah, um, when they're in a they're in an obviously weak division right now, um, and uh, and they went out and signed Kenta Maeda to a two year twenty four million dollar deal. He um came back from Tommy John surgery last year. He threw 104 innings, had a 4-2-3 ERA and uh you know, an expected ERA under 4. Um what did you think of of this signing for the Tigers? Um I really like it for the reason of Kenta Maeda is a guy that uh can keep the ball in the yard. I think he'll do a good job of that and I think he'll obviously be in a good ballpark to be able to do that. Um obviously the the Tigers needed I'd say a pitcher. It's probably not their biggest need, but uh, I think the rotation looks a lot better with Maeda in it. You know, it's it innings, obviously. Uh, um, 
And yeah, I mean, ten and a half, ten point one strikeouts per nine last year in over a hundred innings. Um, and I really like, I really like the idea of him pitching in that ballpark half the time. Um, but more importantly, I mean, I really like how he meshes with the rest of that rotation because it really feels like Tigers have five, maybe six guys that you can like say is going to be in their rotation next year, or at least you know you don't feel awful about them making a start. Where it's Targ Skubal who is like a sleeper ace in in Major League Baseball, I would say. Maeda slides in nicely as a two. And then, you know, there's a lot of potential and, and unknown. Uh, let's see what we got with Matt Manning, Reese Olsen, Casey Mize, Sawyer Gibson Long. Uh, you know, this, there's, there's a ceiling and a floor, and I think they're very far apart. Uh, but Maeda adds a little bit of stability to that. Right, for sure. And, uh, you know, adds a veteran presence, as cheesy as sometimes that may sound. But uh, mm-hmm. he do, he does add that. He's been in the league for a good while. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a matter of whether he's keeping the ball in the yard or not. His strikeout minus walk rate was, was pretty phenomenal. It was, uh, over 20%, I believe. And, uh, out of 127 pitchers to throw hundred innings last year, that strikeout minus walk rate ranked 15th in top, like 12 ish percent in strikeout minus walk rate. Um, you know, coming off Tommy John surgery, very, very impressive. Uh, so getting him on $12 million a year, like, you know, it's, it's low risk. I think it, it, it can bring a solid reward. Um, he hasn't really ever had like a disaster year. It seems like sometimes it seems like the, you know, the, a lot of the, a lot of years they were trying to figure out what his role was and trying to figure out if he would be healthy enough. Um, so if he can have a consistent role, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of positives that can be brought to the tigers here. Yeah. And I mean, it's obviously not their biggest need. They need, they need a bat. I don't know. I don't know who it's going to be, but they need, they can't, I don't think they can go into this season with the offense they have now. I think there should be one more bat. Um, It's not the end of the world, but there's a lot of guys that are, I think more potential than, you know, than actual, you know, guys that you can depend upon. You know, we need Riley Green to take a step up, but he also just got Tommy John surgery. We need Spencer Torgelson to be a little more consistent. You know, he did just hit 30 home runs, but, uh, you know, great numbers to increase. We need Kerry Carpenter to do that again. Mark Canna to adjust nicely, which I think he could. Javier Baez needs to, you know, step up and be the player that they signed him to for that contract. You know, that's a lot of, a lot of, they need this, but we don't really know if they're going to get it. So, I mean, I think they need one stable bat in that lineup, and I don't know where it's going to come from, but that's the last thing that I think they really need. And I think people are really going to start looking at this Tigers team as the biggest sleeper team in the league, probably. Uh, yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think you bring up a good point with, with the bat, with, you know, the lack of bats is, you know, this team had an OPS, a team OPS plus of 87 and that's park adjusted. So that accounts for the fact mm-hmm. that they played a pitcher's ballpark. Um, so a team OPS plus of 87, I don't know how many playoff teams have, you know, gone into the playoffs with a team OPS plus of 87, I'd say, you know, slim to none. And even that, that's like, yeah. And that's in a second place season. Like imagine if they had a, a 95. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's going to be their biggest roadblock is their lineup. And the trouble is, you know, if, if the Tigers, no matter how gung-ho the Tigers are going to be this offseason, there just simply aren't a lot of good bats in the market this year, or at least elite bats that are really going to turn your team around. So, um, you know, that's going to be a little bit of a roadblock they run into. But 
hopefully they can sort of build small and, and hope for growth from a lot of their, you know, young roster. Yeah. Who do they, do they have anyone coming up next year? Cause they drafted, I mean, they drafted a high schooler last year, so I can't imagine there's like a, uh... yeah, I mean, I guess I... Jace Young is their number one prospect, right? I don't know if he's coming up next year though. Yeah, yeah, Max Clark sure. is certainly not going to be on the roster next year because he he was playing in high school last year. Um, I don't know. Can we can we possibly say Jace Young is there? What what level did he play at last year? Cold Keith is another one. I guess Cold Keith could be there at third base. But even then, that's a guy that's got to you know adjust the majors in one year. Yeah, I'd say the Tigers are a team where like. Any other division, you're not really looking out for them too too much. But because they're in the central, mm-hmm. it's like, all right, there's there's a chance for like literally everyone here except for the White Sox and the Royals. But um, yeah, there's a there's a good shot for them, and they have a lot of with how young the roster is, they have a lot of room for growth. Yeah, no, they absolutely do. And there's you know yeah, there's a couple guys down there. Jace, yeah, like I mentioned, Jace Jung, Colt, Colt Keith, those are like the two major uh bats that they have in the minor leagues that we could see next year um so there's there's potential for that as well but yeah i do think one more bat and this team is serious yes yeah um definitely something to look out for uh the last thing i'll mention with kenta maeda when i was looking at him um kind of a an odd uh an odd trend for batted ball data and it's almost kind of an anomaly so i don't think this will happen again, but from 2021 to 2023, his uh, ground ball rate dropped uh, 6.4 percentage points and his fly ball rate increased 8.3 percentage points. Uh, So, and his pop-up rate decreased and his line drive rate increased. So, you know, nothing, nothing good there, but I imagine like that'll even itself out considering, you know, for all of his career, he had a ground ball rate of at least 40% and last year was 33.6%. So mm. I feel like that's something to maybe look at positively because it just seemed, it seems so out of left field that I just don't see that really happening again. That's crazy. Cause he threw 104 innings, a 33% ground ball rate, like should not be sustainable for that long, no matter who you are as a pitcher. Yeah. Unless you're Christian Javier. Um, unless you're christian javier yeah that's that's the only yeah only one but um yeah anything more on the maeda deal um no i mean i think we kind of said uh what we thought um so that leads into a trade that kind of uh had us maybe scratching our heads a little bit um nothing like nothing like shocking shocking but we were like, huh, this is pretty interesting. But uh, Eugenio Suarez was traded by the Mariners um, over to uh, over to what? Where was he? Where was he traded to again? Arizona, 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 um, for a for what a reliever and like kind of a prospect. Sebi Sebi Zavala and a reliever. I don't remember the guy's name. Yeah. Um, what what were your thoughts on the Mariners dishing him off? I mean, I've, I'll start by saying I love this trade for Arizona. Um, but of course, there's another team at the end of at the other end of that deal 
uh, that I don't love the trade for, and that obviously would be the uh, Seattle Mariners. We talked about this team two weeks ago on the free agent show, Chris, and our, our consensus was they need a bat. You know, I mean, they were supposed to be a championship contender in uh, 2023, and they missed the playoffs entirely, um, which is not good. You, you can't have that. <laughs> you really cannot have that. Um, and I know that Eugenio Suarez strikes out a lot, all really hard, and that's kind of exactly what they need. And they just lost a guy that can do that. He also had 11 outs above average last year. Uh, and it sounds like, and they also had just signed Luis Arias beforehand, and reports have said that they plan on playing him at third base, which is, uh, I think, a, a pretty significant downgrade. Eugenio Suarez was only owed $11 million last for the next year, and Luis Arias is going into arbitration projected to make around $4.7 million. So... If that holds up, and obviously it's not going to be exact, but the Mariners are saving about $7 million to uh, get rid of one of their better bats uh, and, and you know, create another positional need, essentially. Because I don't think, you know, I don't think Luis Arias is going to be uh, a productive everyday third baseman for that team. Right, right, for sure. And I think it, I think part of, part of this is the, maybe like, um Jerry Depoto type like retool like consistent retooling of a team like make never going full like buy or sell necessarily um but just trying to make the tr- just trying to make what might what he feels best is best for the team and I guess you know odds are so Eugenio Suarez was coming up on a kind of a contract year there was a team option after that I'm not sure that obviously the Mariners didn't really plan on picking up, I guess. So essentially the, you know, he was going into a contract year and I think just Depoto saw it and, and was like, well, we're not going to be, you know, resigning him any anytime soon. You know, we could potentially just trade him off. And I, I feel like I'm going to wait to judge this trade until we see what the Mariners do in free agency. Cause if they go out and they, you know, have duds on the free agent market and and don't sign anyone big, you know, uh, offensively, then this looks like a very, very, very bad trade. But if they are able to go out and get, you know, two, three, two, three impactful bats, then it's like, okay, I kind of see what they were doing. Like they were trying to get some value out of Suarez, um, but keeping their lineup sort of, you know, with getting these extra acquisitions, keeping their lineup pretty good. But um, if they don't, if they don't go out and do that, then this doesn't look like a very good move. So I think that this was a John Stanton move and not a Jerry Depoto move. John Stanton is the principal owner of the Mariners, and Jerry Depoto, of course, is the GM. And it looked like the only really re- real reason they made this move was to save money, because if they were trading him on the basis of like actually trying to get a return, I think they could have done a lot better than Carlos Vargas and Sebi Savala, even if it was for one year. But, you know, the Diamondbacks, they're one, their biggest positional need uh, from an offensive standpoint, was the third baseman. You know, Evan Longoria was all right last year, but he's a free agent now. Um, you know, I don't know if they want Emmanuel Rivera there, uh, you know, because they kind of use him as a defensive replacement more during the playoffs. So, uh, you know, it crosses off a big need for them. Uh, Suarez is a guy that hits a lot of fly balls, um, and he actually had better expected numbers than, than on-the-surface numbers last year. Um, and all the reports, like I mentioned, I think Rosenthal reported, that they plan on playing Luis Arias every day at third base, and he slugged uh, under 300 last year. So, you know, you're getting 
that's slugged under 300, uh, which is, uh, I don't think what Mariner fans want to see. As of right now, their their bottom four in their projected lineup is Cade Marlowe, Luis Arias, Dominic Canzone, and Josh Rojas. So, uh, you know, they're definitely going to need to pick it up in, in free agency. Um, and it does sound like uh, Blake Snell is, like, begging to go there. Um, so maybe you sign Blake Snell, you trade Logan Gilbert for some bats. Maybe that's the move. Maybe you trade Brian Wu, Bryce Miller, whatever you can, uh, to, to eventually have the uh, Snell, Castillo, Robbie Ray, Kirby, and someone else uh, in rotation. Yeah, maybe that, maybe that Kirby for Soto one for one will will happen, like we uh like we talked about yeah. off air one yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, but, yeah. The the Soto for Kirby one for one. Yeah, my Mike Petriello off air was was not in that trade for from the podcast. <laughs> Understandable, which I I get, but you know the guy Kirby has way more control. I'm not saying Kirby's a better player, but you know, there's there's a little oh, something not there. At all. Yeah. Um. So, anything more on the Suarez trade, dude? 19 walks in 190 and two thirds innings is nuts. It really is. <clears throat> no, but still, 119 walks in 190 and two thirds innings is absurd. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, it's it's an extremely lame move from the Mariners. I really wish you know a team that was. Trying to make it to the postseason would act like it, you know. It this, I mean, obviously, yeah. This this could be a wait and see type of move, but you know, they're saving seven million dollars. I don't know how much, how much they could do with that additional seven mil. You know what I mean? Like, if they get Blake Snell, would they have not been able to do that if they had seven million dollars less? I don't think it's going to come down to that, especially because Blake Snell is, if they even get him, if they're even interested in him, uh, that's only that's not even the biggest need. You know, you just filled another, you just filled up another hole, or you just created another hole rather in your offense, uh, which is more work that needs to be done because you wanted to save that money. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's definitely very interesting. Very interesting. I've but I love it. I love it for Arizona, though. I mean, that's, you know, that's a team that made it to the World Series last year and, uh, is getting better. Yeah, I'm. I'm wondering what the long term implications are for Seattle. Um, and yeah, from, from Arizona's perspective, like, you know, off it, you know, despite, um, all their success in the postseason last year, they were, um, outscored in the regular season, I believe, and they had an OPS plus below a hundred. So getting a, getting a bat will help them out. And I know, um, excuse me, I know Suarez did, was a little bit underwhelming last year, but in 2022, he did have a 129 OPS plus. So, um, you know, there's, there is that major potential there, uh, you know, major extra base hit potential. Um, and it didn't appear that the Diamondbacks really traded much that was valuable, um, for him. So overall pretty solid deal for Arizona. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, the last deal to get into, um, Luis Severino going across town to the Mets. What did you think about this one? Uh, I mean, uh, Luis Severino, I think this kind of offseason was always viewed as like a, you know, which team is going to try to fix him type of, of player, which is why I had him going to the Dodgers. I thought it would fill a hole and it would also give them a lot of, uh, you know, something to work with and a lot of potential because Severino was a Cy Young candidate every year before he, you know, started getting hurt in 2019, I believe. 
Um, and last year was unfortunately like particularly bad, but uh, you know, I still, I mean, he's only 30 years old, you know, I feel like there's still some sort of reason to believe there can be something there. Um, but you know, I mean, he's going, going to the Mets now. Um, and I feel like he's going to be a good test for, uh, David Stearns and the baseball operations department to see what they can come up with because it is a new, uh, regime in the baseball ops department. Um, and, you know, to have a guy that has that kind of potential that you can, you know, that, that has potential to become a success story, it, it would be a good first test. Yeah, it, it would be pretty interesting. Um, I think what's most alarming about what Severino did last year was the change in strikeout rate. You know, he was consistently upper 20s throughout his career, but last year his strikeout rate was 18.2%, I believe. And the whiff rate, um, I'm trying to figure out here, the whiff rate went from uh, 27.8% in 2022 to 20.6% last year, you know, a 7.2 percentage point difference. So I think that's kind of the most alarming thing. He still has the regular Luis Severino velocity. Um, I'm trying to figure out what the pitch move, what his pitch movement is looking like, but it's kind of hard to uh, judge that. But, you know, I think the stuff's sort of still there. So it'll be interesting to see if the Mets, you know, under this new, sort of general management, new baseball operations department can sort of retool him and, you know, create him into the old Luis Severino. Yeah. I mean, a lot of his problems lie specifically with his four seam fastball, um, which was, you know, I mean, that was his bread and butter pitch back in 2017 to 18. Uh, it's not exactly as fast as it used to be. Uh, last year it averaged 96.5 miles an hour. And before that it was around 97.5. Um, which, you know, it is only a mile di- mile per hour difference, but, uh, you know, I mean, batters hit 353 against it last year. They slugged 688, uh, and, I mean, the expected slugging was 100 points lower, which is, I guess, encouraging, but uh, it certainly does uh, cause some questions and some, some cause for concern uh, when, you know, that pitch isn't working. And I wonder if they maybe change up his arsenal. He does... He's very, very in few scenarios thrown a sinker before. Uh, he introduced his sinker in 2022, uh, threw it 17 times, only 13 of them to, uh, or 13 of them to righties and four to lefties. And last year he threw it 45 times, but 43 were to righties and only two were to lefties. So, you know, it's pretty clear he doesn't have much confidence in it if he's not throwing it to, to lefties at all. He also has a cutter. Uh, so maybe there's a switch in primary fastball usage, or maybe they fixed up his four seamer. Um, but, you know, there is certainly is some kind of potential there. Right, right. Um, And looking at, like, the movement, it just looks like his pitches moved a little bit less last year than normal. Um, So maybe there's something to look out, look at there. Um, But, yeah, it's, 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 you know, we, we knew that this deal was going to be the ultimate I can fix him deal because we know, you know, what is, what he looked like in the late 2010s and even early 2020s when he was healthy. Uh, but last year was, you know, that, that was not the Luis Severino we had come to know. So, and he's still, you know, he's, how old is he? Like 30, 31? Uh, 30. Yeah. He's going into his age 30 season. Yeah. He's 30. Like he's still pretty young for a pitcher, you know, to put it frankly. So 
yeah, uh, you know, there's there's definitely potential there. It's 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 an I can fix him deal, and and I guess the Mets are uh, are are trying to be the fixers. Yeah, uh, another interesting. Oh, uh, his from 2017 to 18, his fly ball rate was uh, 18.4% in 2017, 19.6% in uh, 20. Or sorry, it was 18.4% in 2017, 19.6% in 2018. And in every year since then that he's pitched in, which is 19, 21, 22, and 23, the lowest his fly ball rate has been is 24.5%. So, I don't know. I mean, that could be where that sinker comes in. You know, he gets the ball on the ground a little bit more, keeps it out of the air. Um, I think that's something that would, you know, pretty clearly make him better, especially because a lot of his issues last year uh, were home run related. Um, you know, I mean, he gave up 15 home runs alone on his four-seamer uh, in just what uh, 739 total pitches which is not the best ratio especially because he only had 38 strikeouts with it as well um that's not very good but yeah i mean there's there's potential and i think it comes with the pitch mix yeah yeah for sure um and you know last thing i'll talk i'll say on it is the uh the fly ball rate increase in is coming at the cost of his ground ball rate and it's not coming with like more pop-ups usually a guy with a higher fly ball rate is going to have a higher pop-up rate but when severino's uh fly ball rate went up his pop-up rate did not so you know that created more you know less potential for outs when the ball was in the air so um yeah so it you know not the not the best trend to to go into um anything more on the severino signing um i mean it'll be interesting to see yeah, I mean, he's going to the Crosstown rival, which is fun, and it would be interesting to see if the Mets can, can fix what their uh, other, you know, their New York American League counterparts couldn't. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that's those are all the signings we have. And now we get into Hall of Fame talk uh, is Daniel's favorite time of year, uh, or favorite, favorite time of the offseason, I guess. But this does take most of the offseason. So, yeah, we're talking about the 20, well, technically the 2024 Hall of Fame ballot. Um, the the ballot dropped. What, you know, what were your thoughts on the, the names added? November 20th. I mean, this is the year that I've been waiting for for quite a while. You know, there's three, three to five first year players on this ballot that I think have spanning from a, like a chance to get in to a chance of staying on the ballot and being an interesting talking point over the years. Um, and there's a lot of things on this ballot, not even just the first years, but there's two returners that are up to go in next year. Um, and uh, there's a chance we have some significant guys falling off the ballot, uh, whether because they don't get 5%, because they get in, uh, and you know making a lot of room for next year. So I decided to give a five Hall of Fame hot takes uh, and these are predictions that I have about uh, how this process will go and, and some takeaways that we'll have. Work. So I'll get into my first uh, prediction, which was uh, Carlos Beltran will have the highest year-to-year gain of any returning candidate. So Carlos Beltran debuted on the ballot last year. He got, I believe, 46.5% of the vote. Uh, which is a really good starting spot because that is over halfway. Uh, the 37.5% is the halfway mark between 0 and 75%, which is uh, what you need to get in. And 
for for most hall of you know for most people on this ballot for guys that don't get into their first year this is a game of changing people's minds and it's kind of weird because it's not like carlos belchon can really do anything to change people's minds his career already happened um and i know that there's you know some kind of speculation with the astros scandal i really don't think it's going to play that big of a factor this year um or in any year but uh this my my general consensus on on year to year gains and losses is that this is not going to be a very big year for really anyone. Uh, last year we had you know it was the first ballot with with uh, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Kurt Schilling, Sammy Sosa, and David Ortiz all being removed from the ballot. Ortiz got in, the other four uh you know had fallen off, and you know with that the only significant first year candidate was Beltran, so a lot of attention went to. Returning candidates, Todd Helton got 20% of the vote, uh, 20% gain, sorry. Uh, Andrew Jones got a 17% gain, Billy Wagner got a 17% gain, and Gary Sheffield got a 15% gain. Uh, four guys going up by that much is, is huge. Uh, I don't think anyone goes up by 15% this year, but I think Carlos Beltran is going to go up by like maybe 13-ish percent. I think he gets close to 60, uh, 60% this year. Um, you know, I think... It's it's a game of changing people's minds, and Carlos Beltran kind of starts that game now because you know forty six percent of people already initially have said yeah I'm already voting for him. Uh, he also does initially like, interestingly already have one drop this year, and it's not even from a guy that put in a, a ten person ballot. So maybe this one's aging poorly already. But um, I think Carlos Beltran is going to change the most people's minds out of everyone this year. Yeah, that's um. Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, Carlos Beltran's Hall of Fame case is very interesting, or, or at least from a national perspective, because, you know, obviously we both think he should be a Hall of Famer and the Astro scandal shouldn't really be put against him because it's it's just it was a it was a much bigger operation than just Carlos Beltran, obviously. Um, and, you know, the it, he his career also wasn't really benefited at all. Like career stats was not benefited at all by that scandal. No. Um, you no, know, it was it was his worst year. It was his statistically his worst year. Yeah, which is fine because he was like forty one that year. Like, there's no reason he should have been better than any other point in his career at that point. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and I think you know, with the scandal, like PEDs, a little bit like time just helps, and people kind of like are able to take a little bit of a step back with the with the thing, and and you know give him some time but you know i think also part of why he you know it wasn't a first ballot hall of famer necessarily was you know there are some like maybe traditional marks that he just didn't get to like the 3000 hits or 500 home runs although he had you know 2700 or something like that and you know for, over yeah. 400 home runs i believe so you know he he was collectively like a very very good player so but I think time will help him out. Um, he's just objectively one of the best players on the ballot. So seeing him get an increase, especially considering last year was his first year, um, I, I feel like that would make a decent amount of sense. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, you know, going back to the whole changing people's minds thing, you know, I mean, Scott Rowland debuted at 10.2% on his first ballot. Uh, and granted, he debuted on a stacked ballot. I think it was the year that Mariano Rivera uh, and Roy Halladay were first years, plus Bonds Clemens, uh, Edgar Martinez was still on it, Mike Justino was still on it. Uh, 
And, you know, he got about two-thirds of the writers to change their minds on him over the years. And Carlos Beltran has nine years to uh, change them to count for first-year voters. It doesn't account for anonymous voters. Uh, so, I mean, I think 46.5% is a really good place to debut for Carlos Beltran. You know, pending pending anything else coming out about the Astros scandal, uh, and even then, I think it's not going to play that much of a factor. I think it's quite easily a matter of when, not if. Yeah, right, right, right. For his Hall of Fame case. Yeah, yeah. So um, my second Hall of Fame hot take for this year is that Gary Sheffield will be at 70% before the results are announced. So Gary Sheffield got 55% of the vote last year. Like I mentioned, that was a 15% gain from the previous year where he had 40.6%. Um, and I think this year, uh, it's obviously his last year on the ballot. He is the lone uh, 10th year candidate on this year's ballot. Um, and I think uh, he's going to get a lot of uh, support from people that haven't previously voted for him because uh, I think a lot of writers tend to vote for guys on their 10th year just to say that they voted for him. Gary Sheffield's not making it to the Hall of Fame this year. I think that's a pretty uh, clear statement, but um, I think he's going to do surprisingly well heading up to the election to the point where MLB Network's going to have to show Gary Sheffield highlights during their like pre-election show just you know because there's an outside chance he gets in. Uh, last year, he had 62.5% of the public vote that came out before the election. Uh, this year, I think he's going to get, gain enough support from guys that hadn't previously voted for him to get to 70. Um, and I, I think, obviously, his percentage will fall off with the private ballots because, you know, those people tend to not like the, the guys with steroid suspicions, guys with confirmed steroid use, whatever it may be. Um, I think he'll probably get around, like, high 50s to low 60s percent of the vote this year. But I do think that he's going to be uh, at a very high percent uh, when the when the results are announced. Yeah, um, and I think also another point with the with the private ballots is they just generally have smaller um, ballots. Like they don't, I just don't think they vote for as many people as the public ballots. Um, so yeah. like that'll that'll obviously hurt them with the voting. But excuse me, um, but yeah, Sheffield, you know, he's he's had a very interesting case. He was tied up with um, a steroid case in like oh three, but. He wasn't like the poster child of, of PEDs necessarily. So his case isn't ex exactly as well known. Um, but, you know, a guy in the 500 home run club, a guy um, who had a career OPS over 900, um, played with many teams, made an impact with many teams. Um, so, yeah, it, I think it would be like it would make sense that he got, you know, similar notoriety on that, you know, 10th ballot, because obviously the 10th ballot, you know, guys just see an odd increase. I think we saw that with Jeff Kent last year. We saw that with Fred McGriff. Fred McGriff. Um, so, you know, that, that just tends to happen. So it would be, it would be cool to see him get, you know, close to 60% of the vote this year. Um, what is the, what is the third hot take? So my third hot take, this is definitely the riskiest one because it could blow up at any point in the next two months. Uh, but I think, and I'm putting a lot of faith in the BBWAA with this one. But I think Adrian Beltre will be unanimous before the results are announced. I think he will be on every single ballot that comes out before the election. There's usually about 200 of them. I think he will be on all of them. Uh, and it, I, it takes one person to screw up that take. It hasn't happened yet, because uh, that would be really embarrassing if it did. But 
Adrian Beltre has the clearest Hall of Fame case for anyone we've seen since at least Derek Jeter. And I think there's a case you could even go beyond that. Um, I think, you know, he's a, he's a guy that appeals to all uh, subgenres of voters, whether you're an old school voter, a new school voter. Uh, there's, there's really not much that isn't to like about Adrian Beltre. He's a guy with uh, over 3,000 career hits. He's a guy with 477 career home runs. Uh, he's a guy with 90 uh, B-War and F-War. He's a top five player all time at his position. Uh, he's also he was also tremendous at defense. Uh, I mean that's why his WAR is so high. I think he's second in fielding runs all time behind just Brooks, Brooks Robinson, uh, which is a pretty good person to be the only person you're trailing. Um, yeah, I don't I don't see you know I think there's I just it's so hard to find a reason to vote against him. Uh, I think the only thing you could maybe say if you're really that desperate is like he never won a war series even though he got pretty much as close as you possibly can without actually winning one it's also not even like it was his fault you know none of that was you know he 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 had a pretty good ops on that world series and in the that postseason in general but uh yeah i think adrian beltre will be on every ballot before the results are announced i don't think i can confidently say he'll be unanimous period um because you you never really can know but i do think all the people that uh, make their ballots known will have adrian beltre on them yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's it's hard to be unanimous from everyone. Even even the great Derek Jeter was unable to to be unanimous, unfortunately. But yeah, uh, but yeah, um, yeah. He 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 checks off all the boxes. You know, no ties to PEDs. Um, he had the longevity. He had peaks. You could argue like multiple peaks. Um, but just looking at numbers, like twenty ten to twenty fourteen, he averaged six and a half WAR per season. Um, that's pretty great. And he had, and that's not even including his best season of his career where he had 9.6 B war. Um, and then yeah, five gold gloves, uh, was always a very, very good bat, you know, over 3000 hits, you know, there's no one, no non steroid affiliated person, um, with 3000 hits. That's did not, he, in the yeah, did he finish runner up to Barry Bonds in MVP once? Um, back in 04. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he finished second that year, right? Yeah, second. Yeah, I mean, he would have won a gold glove if, or would have won an MVP if if Barry Bonds didn't exist. Barry Bonds didn't walk two hundred and thirty-two times that one year. Um, but yeah. uh, if he didn't have a fourteen hundred, if he didn't have a fourteen twenty-two OPS, yeah, Beltre might have had a shot. But uh, but yeah, so. I, yeah, I think there's there's definitely reason to believe with that. Um, but you know, people people have their biases, so we, we will we will see we will see for sure. Um, what is your fourth hot take? Yeah, it's it's so hard to predict because yeah, this yeah that one could fall apart at any moment. Um, this one is a, a kind of a different direction, but I think Tory Hunter is going to fall off the ballot this year. Um, Tory Hunter is in his fourth year on the BBWA ballot, and he debuted at 9.5% in 2020, and uh, all he's done since then is go down. Uh, you know, in 2022, which was the year that David Ortiz was added, that was a really tough year for Gaines in general because nobody fell off the ballot, uh, whether it be uh, through uh, getting in or maxing out on ballots, and Torrey Hunter went down to 5.9%, like, I think. Uh, like, he just barely stayed on. 
And last year, in a huge year for Gainsey, only went up to 6.9%, which is, I think, not enough. You know, for a year where so many people uh, saw a lot of gains, Tory Hunter just did not see them. And like I've mentioned, I don't think this will be a good year for Gaines, and I think Tory Hunter will lose a few votes to people choosing to vote for some first years over him. Um, and ultimately, I think he's going to fall off the ballot this year. Yeah, it, it would make sense. Uh, it's It has not been, you know, this, this ballot is not going to be as friendly to returners as it was last year. You know, last year was the was the ultimate year of, of gains, uh, you know, if, if you want to put it, if you want to put it like that, uh, for, for everybody, it seemed, but, you know, obviously Tory Hunter sort of missed out on that, unfortunately for him. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it makes a little bit of, makes a little bit of sense. You know, he just, uh, you know, no matter what metric you look at necessarily outside of gold gloves, um, you know, it, he's, he was a very good player, but not necessarily, um, one of the elites. I think, I think the only argument you could really have for him is the fact that he won, um, is the fact that he won nine gold gloves and, you know, had a, was an above average bat for his career. But I think the validity of those gold gloves is, is being put into question and that's being reflected by the voters. So yeah, um, there's, there's definitely reason to believe with, these three major guys coming in and I feel like people who voted for Hunter had pretty big ballots already. And that was maybe their, their ninth or 10th option was putting Hunter on the ballot. Uh, you know, that, that'll, that'll hurt him a little bit. Yeah. And my last, uh, hall of fame, hot take, uh, Chase Udley and Joe Maurer, who are both first year candidates will both debut above 45%. Like I mentioned with Beltron, that is more than halfway to 75 uh, I've actually changed my my kind of thoughts on Maurer over the last year um, because my one of my hot takes from after the election last year was that I think Maurer will get like 60 to 70, maybe even 75%. Um, what I really wasn't accounting for was the discourse around him as a career catcher because Joe Maurer played exactly 49.5% of his games in his total career as a catcher, and he shifted to first base. And it sounds like a lot of people are kind of turned off by that. And I, I really wasn't accounting for that. But I do think he'll still be a Hall of Famer one day. And I think he'll do very well on this ballot and look very encouraging. Um, Chase Hudley, I think, could surprise a lot of people. I mean, it's obviously only been eight ballots that are out so far. But he and Maurer are both at 62.5%. They've been on five out of eight ballots so far, um, which is certainly very good. And obviously, that's only 2% of the known, you know, the total ballots. So you can't really make real judgments off of that but uh you know there's there's a lot of discourse over chase Udley. you know he's a guy that doesn't necessarily have a lot of the count stats uh but certainly has the rate stats and as a second baseman you know really redefined what that position is during a you know during a an era where he, he had he was kind of there with two other really good second basemen at the time with him dustin pedroia and ian kinsler and he kind of ended up having the best career out of those three so um, I think it's very possible that Chase Utley does very well. I think Joe Maurer also gets over 45. I think both of them get 45% this year. And it becomes a matter of when, not if, for their Hall of Fame inductions. Yeah, interesting stuff. And, you know, regarding regarding both those players, I feel like also there's a little bit of, you know, the their, like, spotlight factor. I feel like when you think of late 2000s baseballs, 
late 2000s baseball, those two are coming up to mind pretty quickly. Like Joe Maurer was one of the staple catchers of the of that generation, and Joe and uh, Chase Utley was one of the staple second basemen of that generation, and you know a leader on a you know a, a profound leader on one of the more successful teams of the late twenty of of the late two thousands and early twenty tens with the Phillies. Um, so yeah, like you know, there's there is that sort of factor there. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that they can have some uh, significance on this ballot. Um, I'm I'm not quite sure where where they'll land, but if they end up, you know, 45 or higher first ballot, you know, that should be a that should be a good sign. Um, so yeah, we'll see what what the voters do if they if they disappoint us, if they reward our faith. Who knows? Um, but yeah, should be very interesting. Should be very interesting. I'll give a uh, I'll give a bonus hot take real quick. I didn't write this one down, but I I definitely have wanted to say this. Um. As much as I don't want to be saying this, I don't know if Billy Wagner is going to be the lock that we see him as right now because he has to gain 7% of the vote after gaining 7, 17% last year, uh, which theoretically should be no problem. But like I said, it's not going to be a good year for gains. And I feel like it's going to be a lot closer than we think. I do think he'll make it this year. I don't think it's a 100% chance. I'd give it like an 85 to 90% chance. Yeah, right, right, right. You know, that that last you know that last percentage that you need is, is always seems to be the steepest climb for a lot of these players yeah it's because the, there's there's fewer voters that you have to change the minds of yeah exactly exactly um yeah i do yeah. think he'll i do think he'll get there though but i think it'll be pretty close yeah and, he, pers- and even if he doesn't make it this year he'll make it next year in his 10th year personally i hope the miller school of albemarle head baseball coach uh makes it in uh shout out to Shout out to the Charlottesville Same. area. I hope uh, I hope Cape Cod Baseball League. Yeah, I hope uh, the Cape Cod Baseball League Hall of Fame class of twenty twenty two. Uh, inductee gets in. Yeah, he fills he fills both of our niches: uh, Central Virginia and the Cape Cod Baseball League. He um, does. So, yeah, yep. just very very funny. Um, but yeah, there's other other Hall of Fame happenings going on. Um which I'm sure, Daniel, you're very excited about. However, there's not really any players to talk about, which is unfortunate. We don't really have much to analyze. I mean, what, what, are, you, what are you thinking about this new, this new era ballot that we, that we have going on? What's it called again? Yeah. I don't, they change, it's different every year. It's tough. Uh, what, what's the era Temporary baseball era committee for managers, executives, and umpires. Yeah, so it's the same name. It's just uh, they're changing up the. Okay, it's yeah. So it's I don't know. I feel like there's no one to really get like passionate about on this ballot because there's no statistics to go along with them. It's there. It's literally just more based on field than anything else. Um, I guess we could kind of briefly go over the four minutes that are on this ballot so it is uh cito gaston who is most remembered for managing the blue jays uh during their two world series seasons uh in 1992 and 93 um he managed them for 12 years uh from 1989 through 97 and then 2008 through 10 um he won obviously two pennants and two world series in back-to-back years with them uh in total managed them to a 516 winning percentage in 
uh seven in over seventeen hundred games. Um there is Jim Leland, uh famously managed Team USA baseball in the twenty seventeen World Baseball Classic, but also managed the uh Florida Marlins, Pittsburgh Pirates, Colorado Rockies very briefly, and the Detroit Tigers. Uh, in total, he managed almost thirty five hundred games. He was literally one off. And he's seventeen sixty nine and seventeen twenty eight record. Uh, he won three pennants, one with the Marlins and two with the Tigers, and then also a World Series with the Marlins in nineteen ninety seven. Uh, he also was as close as you can possibly get to getting the Pirates to the World Series in nineteen ninety two. He got them to the playoffs uh, in nineteen ninety, nineteen ninety one, and ninety two, I believe. Um, right, they were there in ninety one. Uh, who the against the Braves. Um, they were the twins, the pirates. No, oh, the, the pirates? pirates against the Braves in the NLCS. Uh, um, they did get there though. Um, yeah, they definitely got there. I think Jim Leland, out of all the managers, probably has the strongest case. We get into that later. Uh, yeah, Davey Johnson, who managed uh, the only team that I remember him for is the Nationals, which is kind of embarrassing. But he managed the Mets, uh, the Reds, the Orioles, the Dodgers, and the Nationals. He managed from ages forty-one through seventy. Uh, which is pretty crazy. He won a World Series with the Mets in 1986. Uh, he also managed them to uh, really like some of the best years that the franchise has ever had. A 90 win season in 1980, or 98 wins in 85, 108 wins in 86, 92 and 87, 188, 87 wins in 1989. Um, yeah, I mean, kind of the the golden age of Mets baseball was was headed by Davey Johnson in the mid 80s. Um, he also managed the Orioles to a 98 win season, a wire to wire season in 1997. They led the division literally every day. Uh, and then also the 2012 nationals, uh, he managed to 98 wins. That was the, uh, the year that they was, I guess he's kind of responsible for the shutting Steven Strasburg down. Maybe that's his legacy there. That may have been more of a front office move than a managerial move, but that also happened there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Uh, and then the last manager is who is the last manager? Uh, oh, Lou Pinella. Yeah, Lou Pinella, who managed the Reds, uh, the Mariners, the Rays. And I don't know if that's it or not. Uh, oh, he managed the Yankees as well. Managed the Cubs. Uh, yeah. Won a World Series with the Reds. Brought the Mariners to the postseason for the first time in franchise history uh brought them gave them the 116 win season uh he also is a guy that has a very strong chance as a manager uh he has a uh 517 winning percentage career which is very good over that span yeah yeah for sure um regarding you know regarding managers and hall of fame it's it's bringing me bring me flashbacks to you know talking about manager of the year and reminding me like oh god we're evaluating managers yeah. like we don't really yeah. know what's going on here and especially like considering much of these guys careers happened you know before we were really baseball fans um and we don't really know like what was the what were the expectations of these teams like were these teams you know trading a bunch of players and were the, but they were still you know doing doing really well or did this team only succeed because you know their front office really invested so it it you know puts it puts us behind the eight ball to sort of evaluate these these 
guys. But, you know, if you're managing a, a team to a World Series, I feel like there's definitely some some substance there. So shout out to, you know, David Johnson, Lou Pinella, and, and Cito Gaston in that respect. Cito Gaston did it twice, um, back-to-back years. So there's there's some substance to that. But, you know, you and especially we didn't see those guys make the make the game by game decisions and and what their everyday lineups look like. And if that was the right decision. So, you know, it, it does put us behind the eight ball. Whereas, you know, we, we, us two can evaluate Bill Dolan's career before 1900 based off the numbers that we have. But, you know, with, uh, with managers, it's, it's a little more hard to judge. It is. It's very weird. Yeah. Um. So umpires, there are two. Joe West is one of them. Uh, Joe West is a man that needs no introduction. <laughs> if you if you know, uh, if you know, you know he is and he has umpired more major league baseball games, I believe, in history than any other umpire. Um, weirdly enough, I think overall he might have the best chance to get in, just because he, I feel like he just stood out more in his job than anyone else. Maybe that's a good thing as an umpire. Maybe it's a bad thing. I don't know, but I feel like. And I, I got. I feel like absolutely zero pitchers will vote for Joe West. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because they they do announce who is voting in these in these uh, in these elections. Um, the other empire is Ed Montague, who I'm trying to look at information for. Yeah. All right. This is even harder. You spent 30, 35 seasons as a major league umpire retiring in 2010. I mean, 35 years is a long time. Yeah, it is a long time. You talk about longevity. Yeah. Um, and then the other two are Hank Peters, who is an executive. He was with, he was a GM of the A's. The Kansas City A's in 1965. Um, he was the Baltimore Orioles GM in uh, from 1976 to 87. He was the Cleveland uh, then Indians general manager from 1988 to 91. Uh, which probably means that he built a lot of the dominant uh, Cleveland teams in the 90s or had some part of that. Right, right. This is, in my opinion, this is where the the idea of players or managers and executives voting makes the most sense because they're really the only oh, people absolutely. that can evaluate this. You know, I can, I can look at it yeah. for a player. I can look at a baseball reference page or a fan graphs page all day to see where they matched up statistically. But yeah, you, whenever we will, we will have better analysis. I promise after, uh, after this, this is over and, and people are in, but there's just not a lot to say right now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the other executive is Bill White, who a lot of people have had uh, things to say about. Brian Kenny uh, on MLB Now said that uh, he thinks he's Bill White is the most deserving candidate. He was a player um, for actually kind of a while, not necessarily a Hall of Fame player. Um, he had 202 career home runs, which is pretty cool. Uh, but he was an executive and a pioneer. I think, that, I think that's how he uh, is on is as, a, is as a pioneer. Hmm. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and you know what? It looks like this this voting committee is mostly uh historians and like writers, and not many players, which I guess makes sense. 
Well, at least you have the history aspect. Bill White. Bill White served as a president of the National League from 1989 to 94, following a successful career as a player and broadcaster, an eight-time All-Star and seven-time Gold Glove Award-winning first baseman. White presided over the addition of the Marlins and the Rockies to the NL and Hemp and helped consolidate both the American and National Leagues under one administrative umbrella. That's a, that's a heck of a bio. Yeah, it's a good good LinkedIn resume. On the, on the Baseball Hall of Fame website. Yeah, very good LinkedIn resume. Yeah. Yeah, we love um, that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I so... We, we, I promise we will have better analysis on this on the next show. Yeah, well, like... Uh, I don't know. It's very interesting because the way that these ballots work is that guys can only vote for three people, for up to three people. So I feel like maybe there's just isn't like there's just so much variety in in all the ballots that maybe no one gets to seventy five. Yeah, that's what kind of messed it up for the last one that they did because you know F- Fred McGriff got all sixteen, but everybody else just did not get votes because they were all being dispersed around by everybody because. You can only get three. So. Also, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm pre- so so. Uh, Dale Murphy and Fred McGriff are both on that ballot, and I believe two of the voters were Greg Maddox and uh, Chipper Jones, which is like, well, obviously they're going to vote for the Braves guys. One of them being their teammates. Yeah, it's like when uh when Harold Baines got in, and like uh, like one of the voters was uh Jerry Reinsdorf. One of them was a teammate of his. One of them was like the GM who drafted him, Pat Gillick, I think. Yeah, it's like and it, it, some of these ballots are a little a little uh sus with. Yeah, with how there's... they choose voters and who's on the ballot. I don't think this one probably. Will, I don't think this one will be. Yeah, it it seems like an odd yeah. enough cast of characters. Yeah. It'll be interesting though. Hard. Yeah, I, honestly, like I always go into these elections like kind of nervous because the era committee ballots famously like put in some of the worst Hall of Famers, and they also miss on some of the most obvious people. Like they missed on Dick Allen. Uh, in 2022, I believe they missed on, uh, or 2021 into 2022, they missed on Lou Whitaker. Uh, in 2019, going into 20, I don't think I have any reason to be nervous about this one. Like, I don't think there's a single guy that I'm like they need to be in, but there's also not a guy that I'm like they can't be in. Exactly. So, yeah. So exactly. we're just I'm just having fun on this one. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. It's it's a it's a wild card uh, ballot wildcard ballot um any more thoughts before we yeah. uh, wrap this show up uh nope no nothing at all i i will say whoever whoever gets in i we will hype them up next show like we will give them their flowers because we didn't do anyone justice on this show <laughs> it's yeah it's fair enough i mean hardly i feel like hardly anyone knows a lot about i I, I will at least yeah yeah i will i will give a 30 minute uh talk on bill white Yes, yes. We'll make a hype video. Yeah. It'll be like, be like a college yeah. recruitment video for Bill White. Um, all right. Well, exactly. That does it for this installment of above, above replacement radio. We hope you enjoyed this one. It's been a it's been a little while. Um, but if you want to follow us on social media, follow me at, at Chris underscore Gian to follow Daniel on both Twitter and Instagram at Daniel underscore Curran. Daniel was back in the Cape. Uh, and he talked with Billy Wagner, who you may be familiar with from the 2024 and yeah. 
many other Hall of Fame ballots. Um, and, you know, talked about his Cape Cod journey. It's... You may know him from his many appearances. <laughs> on the ballot. You may know him from his many appearances on the Baseball Hall of Fame ballot. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah. Uh, you might know him from his 11.9 career strikeouts per nine, his 3.99 strikeout to walk ratio, his 187 ERA+. Yep. Yep. His... 422 career saves i think um yes that is that is exactly it yeah and his time on the red sox where i actually saw him pitch at fenway as a red sox player i feel like not not many people can say that but um anyway follow daniel uh go go read his article um pretty much on uh, on the website so um so yeah and subscribe subscribe also there's there's quotes from peter gammons in there baseball hall of famer peter gammons correct correct um subscribe to the youtube channel it is called about replacement radio subscribe to the apple podcast and spotify feeds and uh and yeah show some show some love and we hope you enjoy this one and we hope to see you next time where we will be talking about whoever was elected in this era ballot and uh and probably some more free agent and trade free agent deals and some trades so we will see you then winter meetings coming up yeah this conversation this conversation is over is over